Welcome to the fifth episode of Discus, Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science, where we bring you interviews with researchers and clinical leaders in spinal cord injury rehabilitation. I'm Rachel Tappan. So today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Kathleen Martin-Guinness about her recent paper published in the journal Spinal Cord, titled Translating the International Scientific Spinal Cord Injury Exercise Guidelines into Community and Clinical Practice Guidelines, a Canadian Evidence-Informed Resource. Dr. Martin-Guinness is the Reichwald Family UBC Southern Medical Program Chair in Preventive Medicine. She's also professor in the Division of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation in the Department of Medicine and in the School of Health and Exercise Sciences at University of British Columbia. She's the principal investigator of the International Collaboration on Repair Discoveries. She's the founding director of SCI Action Canada, which is a national alliance of community-based organizations and university-based researchers working together to advance physical activity participation in people living with spinal cord injury. She's also the principal investigator of the Canadian Disability Participation Project, which is an SSHRC-funded partnership grant that brings together nearly 50 university, public, private, and government sector partners to enhance community participation among Canadians with physical disabilities. Now, I'm going to admit now that one of my ulterior motives in agreeing to host this podcast with the spinal cord injury SIG of the Academy of Neurologic PT was that maybe sometimes I get to talk to people whose work in spinal cord injury rehab I most admire, and here we are. So uh, Dr. Martin Guinness, the topic of lifelong physical activity for people with physical disabilities, including and especially people with spinal cord injury, is, is a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and you've done so much to move that literature and practice forward. And so I'm so excited to get to talk to you about it today. Welcome to Discus. Thank you very much, Rachel. Uh, You're so very kind. It's really my pleasure to, to be here with you today. And so in this paper, you outline the knowledge translation process that your group went through to help disseminate and implement the International Scientific Spinal Cord Injury Exercise Guidelines in Canada. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to start with a summary of these guidelines first, um, and then talk about the steps that you went through for knowledge translation in the communities. Um, so, so first, what what do the exercise guidelines say? Sure. So, I, I think it's probably probably important to distinguish between the scientific SCI exercise guidelines and these Canadian physical activity guidelines, which are uh, sort of the, the next step from those. So, the scientific SCI exercise guidelines stipulate that to improve um, cardiorespiratory fitness and uh, uh, to increase muscle strength, that people with spinal cord injury should engage in 20 minutes of moderate to vigorous intensity aerobic exercise twice per week and strength training exercises twice per week. And then there's a second exercise guideline, which is to uh, improve cardiometabolic health. People with spinal cord injury should be exercising for 30 minutes at a moderate to vigorous intensity three times per week. Now, the Canadian Physical Activity Guidelines, we, we knew that when we developed those guidelines, uh, that while we stuck really close to the scientific literature, that having two separate guidelines was going to be confusing for people. So the scientific panel that created those guidelines, uh, we, we recommended that rather than trying to, to fix that and simplify it at uh, the scientific level, in order to stay true to the scientific evidence, we wanted to publish two separate guidelines but then make it clear that when people want to use those guidelines in clinical or community settings, that they needed to do some translation to um, just to make it clear as to, to what people should be doing and how and why. 
And that's where this Canadian Physical Activity Guideline project came in. Um, what the Canadian Physical Activity Guidelines suggest, again, based on a community-engaged process, is a bit of a merging of those two guidelines, which suggests that uh, for people who are just starting to be physically active, they should essentially start with that, that fitness guideline, so 20 minutes of aerobic exercise twice per week and strength training twice per week, and then build up to 30 minutes of aerobic activity three times per week plus the strength training. Uh, and we suggest that that's, that's really just the beginning. Uh, start with one guideline. Once you meet it, move on to the next guideline, and then uh, the sky's the limit after that. That's great. You know, I, I will say reading through this paper and looking at the website and like the supporting uh, resources that you've created, that helped me understand the guideline my, better myself, I think, too, that it's this like framing it as sort of a tiered um, recommendation. Um, I, I like it. I like it. <laughs> Not that you were looking for my approval, but there it is. Um, so... <laughs> Now, <laughs> there's so there are two sets of exercise guidelines out there in the literature. I know both from my own clinical practice and as I have students doing searching the literature. So there's these guidelines, and there's also the guidelines from the Exercise and Sports Science Australian position statement. Um, could you briefly highlight differences between the two? You know, why should why should people with spinal cord injury, and then of course we as clinicians, why should we be using one set of recommendations over the other between yours and the other groups? Yeah, that's a great question, and I get asked that a lot. So first of all, I think it's important to clarify that Australian guidelines are simply the WH, the World Health Organization physical activity guidelines that are put forth for the whole population of the world which is 150 minutes of a moderate to vigorous intensity activity per week plus strength training twice per week. The Australian guidelines were generated by a small group of scientists who uh, looked at the scientific literature in um, people with SCI as well as the able-bodied able population and ultimately uh, suggested that the WHO recommendations should be carried over to the people living with spinal cord injury. Now, I... I've been working in the area of spinal cord injury for over 20 years. I've, um, I'm a behavioral scientist. I'm really interested in what physical activity behaviors people with spinal cord injury do. And I've looked at the, the physical activity profiles over three days and seven days of probably, of probably 7,000 people living with spinal cord injury over the past 20 years. So I've got a really good understanding of what people with SCI do. And we know for sure that 50% of people living with spinal cord injury do no exercise whatsoever, not a minute. So I was, back in 2011, um, it was the first time I worked on physical activity guidelines for people with spinal cord injury. And uh, we, the version that you now know, the scientific SCI exercise guidelines were guidelines that we updated in 2017. And really what drives those is I think I come to this with a, a bit of a different philosophical slant on physical activity guideline development for people with SCI. So I, I really believe that physical activity guidelines should be developed, taking into consideration the needs, the values, the preferences of the people who are going to actually use the guidelines. Now, those World Health Organization guidelines, they were developed without any input from people with spinal cord injury, as were the, the Australian guidelines. There, there was no engagement of people with spinal cord injury. I also believe that Exercise guidelines need to be evidence-based. 
And while the World Health Organization guidelines are indeed evidence-based, I, I'm pretty much convinced there's not one single study included in that evidence base that included people with spinal cord injury. We're At this point, we now know that people with spinal cord injury can achieve significant health and fitness benefits from activity levels well below that 150-minute-per-week threshold. So that really makes me wonder, why are we recommending 150 minutes per week of activity to people who, for the most part, don't do any activity because of the number of the barriers that they face? But why are we continually reinforcing this 150 minutes per week threshold if we know that lower levels of activity are effective? And then I think that the third reason is really an ethical reason, and that's that before we should be promoting a particular physical activity guideline, we really need to carefully evaluate the risks and the benefits of implementing that guideline. And there are very, very few studies involving, like literally just probably less than two dozen people with spinal cord injury where the 150 minute per week um, exercise guideline has been tested. And knowing the the propensity for um, shoulder overuse injuries in this population, overheating, and so on. It really worries me, this idea of promoting to everybody with a spinal cord injury 150 minutes per week of activity without knowing the long-term risks and benefits. So, you know, there are big differences between the two guidelines. Uh, the, the scientific FC exercise guidelines and these Canadian physical activity guidelines are were developed by engaging people with spinal cord injury, by engaging SCI clinicians, organizations that support people with SCI, SCI scientists, and they were based on the values, needs, preference, and just a really good understanding of what physical activity looks like in, in this population. So that is a really long answer, but I do get asked that question a lot, and I, it, it's really important to convey that there's there's a lot of issues, I think, that distinguish the two, and it's not just uh, it's not just something superficial. That it's really looking at the ethics, the philosophy, and the evidence um, that that drives guidelines. Well, there's a there's a lot to unpack in there too, isn't there? I, you know, as a clinician working with people with spinal cord injury, you know, I see the barriers that they face every day, right? And and, and related to exercise, we all have barriers to exercise, right? Um, but when it takes just that much longer, say, to change clothes or whatever the case may be, that's a, right, the 150 minutes can be a big ask. And if you're posing that as the minimum, then, right, it's like, well, it's not attainable anyway. You can see how that would be discouraging as well. And it's just give up. And it's, it's so if you really, like you said, if you think about the barriers that people with SCI face, so for example here, if people want to go to the gym, uh, and they don't have their own private vehicle, and they need to organize um, we have special um, uh, buses that people with disabilities can order, but they can only order them a maximum number of times per week. They're highly scheduled. Like, there's no way a person could get to a gym if they didn't have home-based equipment. And everything takes longer when you have a spinal cord injury. There really are fewer hours in the day for people with SCI than for the the rest of the population and trying to squeeze that 150 minutes per week in, it, it's just not feasible for so many people with SCI. Yeah, shoot. Well, when I think about like a physical therapy home exercise program, I've had physical therapy when someone gave me 10 exercises. Oh, shoot. Now I'm like making a confession here. But the, you know, I didn't do any of them, but someone gives me three exercises and like I can get those in 100%, you know, and it's a, a, a variation on that theme, isn't it? Like this is a doable thing um, at the, at the, fewer times per week, et cetera. I like it. Um, 
Yeah. And then is there a reason? So, you know, as you talk about that minimum amount, basically, that someone with a spinal cord injury needs to do in order to see a benefit, is that a a, a different minimum for somebody with a spinal cord injury, say, than somebody without? And if so, do we know anything about what the mechanism of that is? Yeah, great question. And that's something I need to clarify. Uh, because, you know, the, the current evidence is that there probably isn't a, a true minimum, you know, that, that I, I hate, I'll hate to say it, but, you know, that there's this philosophy that anything is better than nothing or something is better than nothing. Um, and while that may be true, I think it's important for people with spinal cord injury to know, like, what's the bare minimum I need to do in order to get, you know, meaningful improvements? And I, I think we're all like that with or without an SCI. Just tell me the minimum. What's the bare minimum I need to do to reduce my risk of cardiovascular disease or prevent cancer? And so the it, for the World Health Organization guidelines, those guidelines are based on the optimal amount of activity that people should be doing to reduce their risk for something like 30 or 40 different chronic conditions, cancers, chronic disease, other chronic diseases. The spinal cord injury exercise guidelines, they're based on the minimum amount of exercise needed to see statistically significant improvements in uh, cardiovascular and uh, uh, muscle strength. Uh, improvements and also cardiometabolic health indices. So it, when I say significant improvements, I mean statistically significant in the literature. And that's also um, an important reason to keep in mind why the SCI guidelines are less than the Australian or the WHO guidelines. And that's because these guidelines are predicated just on fitness outcomes and cardiometabolic health outcomes, not on the whole range of other health outcomes that um, the WHO guidelines can can attest to influencing. We just don't have nearly the enough enough evidence in um, people with spinal cord injury to say how much activity is needed to derive some of those other benefits. And as you mentioned, the physiological mechanisms could be quite different given given the changes that uh, people with SCI experience from a metabolic perspective, from um, uh, autonomic function, and so on. We, I, I'm reluctant to say with certainty that the same amount of activity in a person with SCI as a person without SCI, that they would lead to the same benefits. I'd like to see the evidence before I stand on that claim. Right. Well, and then in this case, too, it sounds like maybe there's value added in doing more, but also the other side of that coin is we also don't know what's the risk then of overuse injuries and and so on as well. So Yeah, and that, that's important too. I don't want to tell people, all right, you're doing 30 minutes three times per week and strength training twi twice. You're good to go. If people can do more, like awesome, fantastic. Just take care of your shoulders, take care of your body. And we know there's athletes who go and do more. I know people who recreationally do more. That's awesome. But I want the, the average person with a spinal cord injury, the 50% of the population who's doing no activity whatsoever, I want them to have a realistic benchmark that they can aspire to and they can feel good knowing if they achieve that, they're going to get significant health and fitness benefits. So now let's talk a, a bit about how you went about the knowledge translation process with this guideline. So you, will you tell us about the process that you use to create resources to support the implementation um, of the community and clinical practice guidelines? Sure. The key thing about this process is that uh, it was a community-engaged process whereby we co-developed the, the resources with uh, physiotherapists, with um, physiatrists, with people with lived experience of spinal cord injury, with organizations that support people with SCI, and also uh, behavior change experts. So we came together for a one-day meeting 
We looked at the existing scientific exercise guidelines. We talked about how we could combine them into a, a simplified message. And then we talked about the different resources that people would need in order to implement the guidelines in community and clinical practice and uh, barriers that they might face and things that we could create that could help overcome some of those barriers and informational needs. This process took a lot longer than uh, I think any of us thought. It, it took over a year. Uh, a large part of that time was spent just trying to figure out how to take those two different guidelines and messaging, message them into uh, something straightforward and simple and, and essentially to combine those guidelines. We worked back and forth with, uh, with our expert panel uh, as well as did surveys of SCI clinicians and people's lived experience of SCI just along the way as we were developing prototypes to make sure that we were getting the messaging correct. For, for my lab, it's really important that everything we do is evidence-based. So when we were hearing about the types of resources that we needed to, uh, to, to address needs, we spent a lot of time going to the research evidence to identify uh, from an evidence-based perspective what types of resources were needed to fill that gap, what was available, what did the evidence say about some existing resources. Uh, we put it all together. We did several pilot tests of uh, the online resources, and uh, ultimately we were, we were able to, to walk away from that feeling that we'd heard, heard the voices of uh, the people who were going to use the guidelines, and their voices were saying that what we had, had created was something practical, uh, something usable, and something that was going to be effective. Nice. And, you, and your paper really outlines the approach that you took um, really nicely as well. And I guess I have a, another question about just generally the approach that you took. How generalizable is it? And I'm, I'm going to give you some context for my question here, too. So in recent years in the Academy of Neurologic PT, we've had a lot of focus on developing clinical practice guidelines for various aspects of neurologic PT practice. Um, so not specific to spinal cord injury necessarily, but different patient populations um, with neurologic dysfunction, um, so locomotor training, orthotic prescription, vestibular rehabilitation. And with the development of each of these uh, CPGs, there's been a corresponding task force to oversee implementation of the CPG. And, and they've done a terrific job. Um, and I'm curious to know, based on your experience um, in knowledge translation for guidelines of various sorts, what are the key ingredients to the approach that you took? Um, that were particularly critical for the translation of, say, any set of guidelines? And, and how does the target audience of the knowledge translation project impact that process? You know, in the first instance, in this case, your target population, I'm thinking, was people with spinal cord injury. For a lot of the, the clinical practice guidelines that our professional organization has developed, it's more a target audience of clinicians. Um, but can the same process carry over, basically, as a template? Yeah, that's a great question. I, th I think the short answer is yes, absolutely. But the, the key ingredient is to know your audience and to engage your audience. So if your target audience are clinicians, the clinicians need to be at the table. But I think even if your target audience is, quote, unquote, just clinicians, you still need to have people with spinal cord injury, people with lived experience uh, at the table. I think that, that's non-negotiable, that uh some, for those of us who don't have a spinal cord injury, I think sometimes we, we, we miss things there. We, no matter how much time we may have spent working in a clinical setting with a person with an SCI or in a research setting, there are just so many things we don't know or appreciate about living every day with, with a spinal cord injury and having people with that lived experience at the table. 
will will give you a broader sense. Uh, you, you'll see things that you just hadn't anticipated by not having that experience at the table. Um, and I think the other key thing is to always have the evidence in mind. When people develop guidelines, I always say, look, you better be prepared to defend those guidelines for the rest of your life because there will always be people who, who will criticize the guideline or have questions about it. And being in that situation myself, the, my fallback is always the evidence. What does the evidence say? I think the more we can stay true to scientific evidence or best practices that are used in clinical care, uh, the less we are opening ourselves to criticisms about uh, what we've put in the guidelines or the recommendations in the guidelines. Oh, Kathleen, you're singing my tune. Um, and I'm certain there's colleagues of mine who are feeling validated for that as well. Yeah. So if you always, if you have that evidence piece and the stakeholder involvement to fall back on, you, I would imagine the criticisms will still come from someone, but you're in a place that you can defend what you've done and it, then it still holds up. I, 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 what I believe, and you know, one of the best examples is when we were developing the, the guidelines, and I always get pushed back, why not 150 minutes per week? And sitting at our table when we did the, the final international panel on the SCI exercise guidelines, I had two people at my panel with lived experience of spinal cord injury, and there was, you know, some opposition, no, that we should just be, we should be focusing on the evidence derived from the general population to create these guidelines. And these two individuals with spinal cord injury both said loud and clear, look, you would never do it the other way. You would never develop physical activity guidelines for the general population based on SCI evidence. Why on earth are you trying to develop SCI guidelines based on evidence from the general population? And when you hear that from the mouths of people with spinal cord injury, it gets really hard to walk away from that and shrug your shoulder and say, you know, who cares? We're still going to look, we're still going to do 150 minutes per week of activity because that's what the general population does. That gets really hard hard to do. We shouldn't be doing it. We should be listening to uh, people with spinal cord injury about their values and needs and preferences. Yeah, touche, right? Um, and and if we can visit for a moment the the actual resources then that you um, developed in your paper, you talk about creating supporting materials with layers in order to cater to the needs and preferences of the end users. And I found that really compelling. Um, the idea that the same resource can be experienced in different ways by different end users according to their needs. And and, and so I'm hoping you can describe how that works. And, and before you do, though, I'm going to say for, for anyone listening, um, I'd encourage you to visit the website. So it's sciguidelines.ubc.ca to see to see it for yourself, to see how it works as well. Um, but if you can describe how that went for us too, that would be great. Sure. And the, the layers that came directly as well from people with lived experience of spinal cord injury. And their perspective was that some people just, just want to know, they, they've never been active before, what should I do? And that that's all the information they can kind of take in at that introductory moment to physical activity is what do the guidelines say and then they said you know other people want to know oh okay okay I'm ready to get started and so we have sort of a next layer of information on uh, you know tools for success telling people some examples of activities uh, how to overcome barriers uh, safety tips and then there's a group of people who might really want to know the science behind these things and why are we recommending these particular uh, things, and they have access to the science on the development of the, of the guidelines. Uh, other people might want to get linked to specific uh, resources right in their community. So that's another sort of very specific 
uh, layer of information that people can have access to. So this really just came about as wanting to recognize that people have different informational needs at different times. Uh, and we certainly hear that from people with spinal cord injury over the course of their time since their, their injury, their informational needs change, and sometimes their desires for physical activity information change. And we wanted to make sure that we, we have something for everyone. Yeah, and and it's really elegantly done. Um, so again, I'd, I'd encourage listeners to like take a look at it because it, yeah, it, it, the resource really is about as complicated or complex, I should say, or as basic as you a person would want or need it to be. It's um, and and so I have one more question for you on this topic. Then, so how has um, implementation and uptake of both the guideline and these supporting resources? How has that gone so far? Yeah, so we're really excited that uh, the guidelines have been translated into, I think, seven European languages at this point. Uh, and I'm just finishing up a project with four Asian countries that have uh, taken up the guidelines and are working on the language translation. Uh, so based on the language translations, we're seeing really good uptake internationally. With regards to the Canadian Physical Activity Guidelines, just before COVID hit, uh, that's when this paper came out, and we were in the, the midst of a, a large knowledge translation uh, and implementation project to, to get the guidelines distributed uh, across Canada. So that's on hold, but I think the good news is is that we are we have right now a pilot project to make sure that the guidelines are implemented uh, before the point of discharge at uh, our rehab hospital, GF Strong Rehab Hospital in Vancouver, British Columbia. And uh, that pilot project will uh, hopefully, we've got some things in place to support people after discharge in carrying out the guidelines. Uh, and so I'm hopeful with that pilot project, we'll have some evidence that will contribute to the uptake of, of guideline implementation at, at discharge in rehab hospitals across Canada. And likewise, right now, um, again, pre-COVID, we were testing the implementation of the guidelines uh, in the community, so giving people the guidelines, uh, sending a personal trainer to their home, providing uh, weekly physical activity counseling to people in the trial uh, to look at the um, the uptake and maintenance of the guidelines over six months and the effects on various psychological and physical outcomes. Um, and that's been on hold due to COVID, but uh, we're, we're excited to see the outcomes of those trials uh, from an evidence-based perspective. From an uptake perspective, we've, uh, we've been doing well in terms of spreading the word about the guidelines. Great. So it sounds like so far so good and more to come in the literature. We, we can follow you <laughs> <Yeah>. that way. <laughs> right on. <laughs> right on. Well, Dr. Martin Guinness, thank you so much for joining me today. This has really been a pleasure, and um, yeah, and, and thanks for the work that you're doing. I, I'm, uh, it's important work for people with spinal cord injury, and this has been really, I know for me as a clinician, has been really helpful to really think through physical activity guidelines and recommendations for my patients of, of just how much should I be recommending and why. So um, thank you for that. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the chance to uh, talk about something I'm so passionate about. And I really want to give a big shout out to Dr. Femke Hoekstra, who's the postdoctoral fellow who led the knowledge translation piece and uh, did all the heavy lifting behind this project and, and getting the online resource up and running. Very good. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for another episode of Discus. And now if you'd like to keep listening, 
Um, Dr. Martin Guinness agreed to stick around and have a chat about behavior change theories. So we, we talk about the trans-theoretical model of change and the health action process approach and, and, and more. Um, so join us for the, a special bonus episode after this. Talk to you later.